0: the body's innate ability at the cellular level to nourish itself, to balance itself, and to defend itself never ceases to amaze me. And that ability to self-defend is expressly showcased in today's interview with critical care physician, Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt worked to combat COVID infection in intensive care during the pandemic. Like no other event in recent history, the coronavirus pandemic brought the spotlight over how we understand, prevent, and treat viral infection. Amid the confusion and controversy surrounding different treatments, one particular view rose to prominence. The idea that we need to support the body's innate immunity. Interferon proteins are a potent instrument of this innate immunity. Created within our cells, their purpose is to block virus cell production. Today we'll learn how interferon was used to counter coronavirus, and how it was used to counter the Spanish flu over 100 years ago. We'll look at the techniques used back then and now to raise interferon levels in cells, and we'll look at how we can do the same on a basic level when we feel infection coming on. Welcome to Vital Signs, where we learn how to get healthier from all angles, from the biochemical and nutritional to the things we do that nourish our minds and our souls. I'm Brendan Fallon. Dr. Schwartz's current practice is in Beaumont, California, where he is a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Optum California. He is co-founder of MedCram, which has garnered over 1.5 million YouTube followers through demystifying medical concepts. Dr. Schwelt, thank you so much for joining me on Vital Signs again. It's great to be here, Brandon.
1: thanks for inviting me.
0: We know that interferons were a factor in people's immunity against coronavirus, and they can also be a barrier against other infections. What are interferons exactly?
1: Yeah, so interferons are these chemicals, uh, natural substances that your body produces. They're sort of uh, messengers Uh, cell phone messages, if you will, between the different aspects of your immune system and uh, specifically something called the innate immune system. So if you divide the immune system into two different tasks or two different aspects, there is the aspect of our immune system, which we're all familiar with where a virus or some sort of foreign substance comes into your body. Your body recognizes it and then makes an antibody to it that's very specific to that disease to that variant if you will and uh, if that virus were to come back uh, slightly mutated that antibody would no longer be very effective against that virus that whole aspect of our immune system is known as the adaptive immune system and it's called that because it adapts to the different variants of a virus we're not talking about that aspect of your immune system today. What we're talking about is a different aspect called the innate immune system. The innate immune system uses very broader aspects. It's able to recognize based on generalities what is uh, what is self and what is non-self. And as a result of that, the types of tools that we will see in the innate immune system is very generalizable to all sorts of, not only just variants, but even viruses. And one of those tools that we're talking about in the innate immune system is called interferon. Interferon is a substance that basically, it's well-named, it interferes with viral replication. And we're not just talking about a specific virus, we're talking about multiple viruses. So hepatitis C, for instance, is actually treated with high doses of interferon. And we can actually today cure chronic hepatitis c if we get enough if we get a high enough dose of, of interferon um but it also is and as we'll show here in this in this talk we'll talk about uh 19 it's also effective against uh multiple variants in fact all the variants of covid 19. so again the the point here is interferon is a very broad it's not specific to a variant it's a very broad tool that our body has in the innate immune system to battle foreign invaders, especially
0: viruses. It's a very fascinating aspect of of what our body does naturally to defend itself. Being that the case, why do people still suffer to the degree they do with with these different infections, with COVID-19 being a, a stellar example?
1: exactly so that's a very insightful question like if we have this great immune system then why do people become infected so uh, scientists have actually looked at this and uh have come to this conclusion look that the body's immune system is so well adapted so well tuned to deal with foreign invaders that the only hope that a foreign invader has of infecting the body is if they have a very specific mitigating mechanism to cripple one or more aspects of our immune system. If, if any self-respecting uh, virus wants to infect a human body, it has to have a plan to get around, to work around the various aspects of the innate immune system. It's kind of like if you wanted to uh, rob a bank You can't just walk in there and and take out money. You have to have a plan, if you will, to get around the security guard, to get around the the defense mechanisms. And what we're finding out is that if you look at the types of viruses that actually are successful at infecting human bodies, they all have a specific mechanism for crippling or disabling the body's innate immune system. And SARS-CoV-2 is is no exception to this. very early on in the pandemic, this is—we're talking about uh, in the early 2020s. There were papers that were published that looked at the forerunner of SARS-CoV-2, which was SARS-CoV-1. They had studied that very extensively back in 2002 when it was uh, when it, when there was an epidemic of SARS. And what they had seen in that specific coronavirus was that yes, there was a mechanism in that uh, in that uh, virus to circumvent or to suppress the body's ability to make interferon. And in fact, this was confirmed later that uh, SARS-CoV-2, the disease or the virus that causes COVID-19, has been shown to have genes in it. And we can talk about those genes, specifically MAC-1, has a specific gene that is there specifically to diminish, to negate, to uh, cripple the interferon response that the body has to get rid of this infection.
0: Is this something that has developed in the, the coronavirus strain, that it's gained this ability to, to get around the interferon?
1: So this specific gene, MAC1, was present at, uh, in the very first iteration of SARS-CoV-2, and it was seen to be um, uh, at least present in some form. In, in SARS, I haven't studied SARS as well to know, but there was just a recent paper paper that was published this year in, in 2023 that took the SARS-CoV-2 virus and they specifically put deletions or they crippled the MAC1 gene, which is responsible for crippling the, uh, the immune response uh, in the body, the interferon response in the body. And what they found was when they infected the, uh, the cells in culture with this new strain of the virus, with this MAC1 gene crippled, that interferon responses uh, greatly increased and that the, the, the cell's immune response was able to create interferon at higher levels and they were able to uh, actually contain the virus much more easily than the wild type or the regular virus which had the MAC1 gene intact. And so they concluded that MAC1 was one of the genes, at least, that was involved in the virulence or the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to, to infect the human body.
0: Given that we had such a, a widespread exposure within the population to, to COVID, what accounts for the differences we saw in the way that it affected people, the different degrees of severity, uh, some people developing COVID, some people not developing it? And how does that relate to to the innate immune system?
1: Oh, that yeah. So so we can talk. Oh, we could we could talk a long time about that. But to focus on the innate immune system, um, there are certain genetic types. First of all, there are certain genetic types of people that have difference in terms of the uh, issues of the uh, the genetics of how much they make in terms of the uh, the interferon but also in terms of the metabolic effects. So we know that as people get older, that we see that they have more issues with oxidative stress, which is one of the effects of, of COVID. And so as you get older, uh, you might have more oxidative stress and therefore you'll be less likely to survive or to um, Uh, to improve with a COVID-19 infection. And that might explain why we saw older people uh, dying at higher rates. But to focus in on your question about the innate immune system, we noticed, and this was a paper that was published in Science, that specifically people who have higher levels of interferon secretion with a SARS-CoV-2 infection actually had better outcomes than those that had lower secretions of interferon. So if we had, uh, if we measured the outcomes, people with severe uh, COVID versus those with um, a mild COVID, what could be predictive of whether or not somebody got severe COVID versus mild was the type of interferon response that they actually had. So higher levels of interferon predicted a better outcome than those with lower level of interferon.
0: That's fascinating to hear. And the obvious question is how do people boost their interferon production?
1: Yeah, excellent question. So before we get to that, let me just, as a proof of concept, um, because people might say, well, association does not necessarily mean causation. So there was a paper that was published earlier this year in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at the intervention of interferon in patients with COVID-19. So in other words, they took people with COVID-19 that were in in an outpatient setting, in the emergency room or in a clinic or in urgent care, and they gave them a single injection of interferon subcutaneously, and what they found was that this reduced the incidence of hospitalization afterwards by 50%. So this essentially, this randomized controlled trial showed that, in fact, if you're able to increase interferon response in somebody with symptoms of COVID-19, um, then this could reduce the risk of hospitalization. And let me just say at this point that we don't at least I don't believe, I don't believe science believes that interferon is specific for COVID-19. So in other words, the effects of this are even farther reaching. So if you were to come down, I would believe with any type of uh, infectious disease, fevers, and you don't know if this is COVID-19 or RSV or influenza, that having an interferon response, which is so general and part of this innate immune system, I think is extremely beneficial.
0: Uh, for, for survival and, and recovery. I hope you're enjoying Vital Signs. I invite you to share this video with at least one friend or family member. It helps to bring subscribers to the channel, which makes my boss happy and supports me to do more and more shows. And it all starts with that share arrow just below. Also find Vital Signs online to leave a comment by going to epochtv.com. Just click on the lifestyle tab and scroll down to Vital Signs i'm aware of, of one particular therapy that was very popular going back about well over a century ago hydrotherapy i know this has a connection to interferon production what is that connection is this something that should be brought back into vogue to to help people battle diseases
1: yeah the, so this is a, this is fascinating so what we know that can increase the the secretion of interferon is increased body temperature. There was a study that was published a number of years ago where they took lymphocytes out of a patients and they put them on a Petri dish and they exposed them to what we call a mitogen, something that tells the lymphocytes that there is an infection going on. And they measured the interferon response at various different temperatures. And once they hit about 39 degrees Celsius, which is about 102 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, there was a 10-fold increase in interferon secretion from the lymphocytes. And this explains a lot about what we have seen and the evidence that we've seen from 1918, which was this use of hydrotherapy. Basically, the use of hydrotherapy is using water and water has a very high heat of enthalpy. What does that mean? That means we can. it takes a lot of energy to heat water up, but once water is hot, it's able to deliver a lot of heat to whatever you put on that patient. And so it turns out that hydrotherapy is a very efficient way of delivering heat to a body and essentially inducing a febrile response. So in other words, the body, when it becomes infected, heats up, it increases its temperature. This is in fact helping the body produce Interferon, and I'm sure it does other things as well, but this interferon response is very important in in terms of treating the patient and and helping getting over the infection. What happens in some of these viral infections is that you don't mount a fever and you don't have that interferon response that you would normally have. What hydrotherapy does in this case is it elevates the temperature of the body, it elevates the uh, interferon response, and it helps the patient uh, mount that immune response to get over that mitigating effect that the virus has in reducing interferon so that the body can, in fact, uh, get rid of the the virus. In the analogy that we used in terms of robbing the bank, uh, it's like adding more security to prevent the bank robber from coming in to steal the money. It's like putting another lock on the safe. It's trying to beef up the defense systems of the body to get rid of that virus. This was not sort of a... Uh, something that was done on the fly. There was actually very good science behind increasing the body temperature of the patient to get rid of the infection. And if you actually look back at uh, what happened uh, around that time, there was a psychiatrist in Austria by the name of Wagner Joreg who noticed... This is
0: going back about uh, the early 1900s.
1: Yeah, early 1900s. This is way back. And what he noticed was that his patients that were in the sane asylum, this is before... Uh, any kind of penicillins or antibiotics, he noticed that people with very advanced syphilis, where it was actually affecting the brain, that when he gave them fever, and he did this by actually taking malaria out of patients who had malaria and injecting it on purpose in these patients. The malaria, of course, we know causes very high fevers. And the high fevers actually cured the patient of neurosyphilis. Now, at the time, they actually had the treatment for malaria, so they just treated the malaria after the neurosyphilis resolved. And he was able to basically treat a disease that up to that point was untreatable. And for this, in 1927, he received the Nobel Prize in medicine for the treatment of neurosyphilis, what was later known, it was later determined that it was neurosyphilis, and this was actually treated by uh, penicillin, which was discovered the next year in 1928. But it showed that by manipulating the body using very simple means of temperature, et cetera, they were able to get the immune system to do something that the immune system on its own was not able to do because it was not able to get over the uh, suppression of the innate immune system. And this was seen in multiple situations. We even do this today in patients with hepatitis C who have hepatitis C chronically. What do we do? We give them uh, very high doses of interferon uh, medically, we actually inject that. Uh, the question is, is what have we done in terms of has there been any kind of studies that have been done in elevating body temperatures? Well, there's a, a lot of data in saunas. Uh, we haven't actually used it for infections, but if we go back again to 1920s, even before that, during the, the pandemic, there were a number of uh, Adventist sanitariums in the northeast of the United States that were treating its flu pandemic patients with sunshine and hydrotherapy, and they were noticing a much better case fatality rate than what was going on in the army hospitals where they were using a lot of aspirin. Now, you know that aspirin is a medication that suppresses fever, it suppresses the, the immune system, and uh, obviously there's a lot of other side effects from aspirin that we're probably experiencing because they were giving very high doses in those army
0: hospitals. Back, but, back at, that, at that point, yeah. Dr. Schweldt, before they had the, this technology to be able to give people directly interferon, what were they doing? I mean, what did hydrotherapy look like at that time? How, how were they using this method to raise people's body temperature?
1: Yeah, so it was very labor intensive. What they had to do was they laid the patient out uh, and they took wet towels and they heated those up to they where they were steaming hot and they applied these towels to the uh, patients, but they put a towel in between them to protect them so they didn't burn them. And essentially what they were doing is they were heating up from the neck down heating up their body so that the patient started to perspire. They started to sweat, and it showed that they were were elevating the body temperature above what the body wanted it to be, and so the body's cooling system was kicking in. And they would do this for about 20 minutes, and they would end up at the end of this with a very uh, a cold treatment to cause vasoconstriction in the outer aspects of the human body to keep that heat locked in. I actually know of a gentleman who is a physiotherapist in Australia by the name of Thomas, and he has put together a uh, a website called a Hydro the number four COVID. So, hydro the number four COVID.com, and he actually has the protocols of what they used back in 1918. Uh, for the influenza pandemic. And so what they were doing is heating up the body using towels. That's why it's called hydrotherapy because it was moist heat. And this was in turn heating up the the core body temperature, uh, presumably increasing interferon levels and uh, causing the the virus to subside and actually improve.
0: Now switching forward to the recent COVID pandemic, many are experiencing a lingering loss of smell and or taste. Earlier, we looked at the scope for controversial drug ivermectin to bring those sensors back. While the pandemic may be over, the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 remain widespread. Two of those symptoms are the loss of taste and the loss of smell. What I think is more importantly is why does it happen to some people, not others? So therefore, we have to look into the individual vulnerability and what makes them vulnerable. Afterward you can find the link to that video in this video's description. Also to get notice of new vital signs videos follow me at vital signs Brendan on Instagram and see vital signs on X. What kind of experimentation was done during the pandemic using hydrotherapy or other methods to raise interferon production uh, to treat COVID-19?
1: I myself personally, because I knew about this, um, used hydrotherapy in the intensive care unit where I was. We actually had the physiotherapists, physical therapists, um, uh, since they were not working in the hospital at that time, we used their their hydroculator. A hydroculator is basically a heating bath where they put uh, gel foam uh, pads in there and they use it for uh, orthopedic and and musculoskeletal issues. We use them to heat up the patients um, I did not do a study on it, so I don't know, uh, I can't tell you whether or not it was beneficial. There were some patients that got better and there's some patients that didn't. I, I, because I worked in the intensive care unit, I'm not sure that hydrotherapy uh, was, would be beneficial on patients at that sort of severe stage of the game when they're on ventilators. Uh, so we were using them um, in, in sort of not just in the ICU, but also on the floor. I will say though, I was recently uh, aware of a study that was done in Indonesia. Uh, And in Indonesia, there's a number of hospitals there that used sunlight and sunshine, but not hydrotherapy to see whether or not there was an improvement in outcomes. And they noticed that there actually was an improvement in getting patients outside. So it was sort of a package deal. If we look back at 1918, what were these Adventist uh, sanitariums in the Northeast doing to their patients that were getting them so much better, more quickly. And the two cornerstones of that were number one is that they were um, getting them outside into the sunshine. And number two, they were doing this this technique called hydrotherapy to improve the body's uh, uh, fever, to presumably increase interferon levels and, and to get rid of the, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus today and the flu virus back there in
0: 1918. Is this something that people can apply on a on a basic level if they feel like they've, they have an infection coming on can they try this approach at, at home
1: i think it's an excellent thing to do because you don't need to have a and I'm, and I'm not saying here by the way i want to make sure i'm clear that i'm not saying that you that you should shun uh medical care because i think that that has its place but if we could somehow uh improve our own ability to fight the infection that might negate the, the uh, need to have further medical care. So you don't need to have a SARS-CoV-2 test to find out whether or not you need to do this. You don't. It, it should work, in other words, whether it's the flu, RSV, uh, influenza, SARS-CoV-2, this should work on any of these things. But yes, I believe that this is something that we should do. This is something that I do personally and my family does whenever we feel like we're coming down with something to do it early, to make sure that it gets done quickly and that your immune system gets the upper hand. And basically what it looks like is this, is I put down a a plastic sheet so you don't uh, get the carpet dirty or wet. And um, you have them lay down, you put their feet in a very hot bath, as hot as tolerable. And that tends to warm up the system because the skin in the feet is a very different type of skin. It allows heat exchange. It's called glabrous uh, feet. Both your hands, your feet, and your forehead are allowed uh, a temperature exchange very quickly. So it's important to put the feet in a hot bath. But then it's also important to put towels over the, the patient, heat up wet towels that are, are very hot. Uh, but not hot enough to burn. So your patient that you're doing this on has to be awake, has to be able to tell you whether or not it's too hot or if they're feeling burned, because that's a big problem with this is you have to make sure that you don't burn the patient. But heating them up for about 20 minutes, you should start to see uh, over their their uh, lip uh, some um, perspiration, maybe even sweating. And, um, and if you can do that for about 20 minutes and then you end on very cold, so you put... Uh, This is a technique that they've done for over 100 years is taking a wet cold uh, towel from an ice bath and putting it over the chest and also putting the feet in cold only for a very brief moment, maybe about 30 seconds to a minute. This has the tendency to vasoconstrict and lock that heat in to keep that heat up for as long as possible. And you do this maybe once or twice a day. In most cases that I've done this in, you only need to do it once or twice because usually the whatever illness was coming on goes away very quickly. Why? Because you're increasing interferon levels. This is your innate immune system that is being boosted to uh, overrun and to affect uh, the virus that is happening. So, yeah, I highly recommend this. Again, uh, the things to watch out for is people who have issues with cardiac arrhythmias. You have to be careful when you're heating up their body because their heart rate will go up as well. That's number one. Number two, you have to be careful about burning them. Uh, because hot towels on areas of the skin that you can't feel. So if they're diabetic and they have neuropathy and they can't feel their feet, that would be a contraindication to doing a hot foot bath. You don't know whether or not you're gonna cause a problem there. So um, it's important to to do this judiciously, to think about what you're doing and to make sure you're not causing more harm than benefit.
0: And earlier, you mentioned a 20 minute timeframe for heating the body. Is there a danger in going beyond that timeframe for the average person? Is there a potential to overheat the body?
1: yeah so you don't want to overheat the body i would not go above 104 Um, and it's not like you have to measure the temperature of the human body uh, when you're doing this because you're usually getting a response but you lose a tremendous amount of of water through sweat and you don't want to become dehydrated oftentimes when i'm doing this i'll have the patient sip on water to make sure they're staying well hydrated or before we do it to make sure that they're very well hydrated as well so uh, if you do it for a prolonged period of time you can become vasodilated you become uh, uh, dizzy, you can have your blood pressure fall, you can become very tachycardic, that means your heart rate's going very fast, and you can lose a lot of fluid. So 20 minutes to 30 minutes is usually uh, time enough. Um, usually, generally speaking, when it's happened to me, and I've been the one that this has happened to, uh, by the time you are at 20 minutes and you've been hot that long, you're ready to get out of there and uh, and to, to cool off. And then I would mention, uh, it's very important that after this happens, after you do the 20 minutes of hydrotherapy, uh, finishing up on cold, the best thing to do after this happens is just to literally lay in bed and rest for about an hour. So you don't wanna be doing anything exertive at that point, just resting in bed and allowing the immune system to do what it needs to do. You'll feel kind of um, exhausted and you'll feel like you need to rest at
0: that point. Understanding that oxidative stress on the cells is something that goes hand in hand with fever, does this suggest an advantage that's often missed with that particular process where the cells do become stressed? I mean, this is something that we often work very hard to to counteract with antioxidants and things like that, but is there an innate advantage there when the body is, is under oxidative stress?
1: You know, I don't know how much oxidative stress uh, necessarily the body suffers as a result of being heated, but uh, I would say, generally speaking, there is definitely a stress that is put on the body. And um, interestingly, this goes into another aspect of 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 understanding, and that is people who do regular sauna uh, um, things. So this is where you're you're repeatedly putting your body under this type of stress. And we have great studies from Finland where this is done often, sometimes even up to four or five times a week. Some people in Finland do this and what we have come to the conclusion of is we notice that there's a definite, benefit, health benefit associated with going into the sauna multiple times a week. There is a dose response curve that occurs. In other words, the more times people go into the sauna, the more benefits we see. And that has led some to believe that this is actually causative, which I believe it is. But what we believe is happening here is that um, that stress that we put on the body allows the body to become more resilient. Over time, because it upregulates certain types of proteins that are beneficial to the human body. One of these types of proteins is called heat shock proteins. Heat shock proteins are proteins that go around the body fixing proteins that are uh, denatured because of heat. And so uh, that upregulation can be beneficial. We see actually in these types of patients who undergo heat treatments multiple times a week, an improvement not just in cardiac mortality, but in all-cause mortality, which is just amazing that we would see that you just tend to die less from all reasons if you are repeatedly stimulating the heat in your body to make these sort of enzymes. And And it falls under this sort of philosophical term called hormesis. Hormesis is a term that is generally used to describe when you are subjecting the body to stresses over long periods of time. And it gets into a lot more philosophical uh, discussion about, you know, what are we doing today in modern society where we have climate control indoors? We are basically moderating all aspects of our interaction with the environment. And maybe that might be a good thing for our comfort, but it may not be a good thing for our health.
0: This is fascinating, Dr. Schwart, and I think this, we should definitely get into this further in the future. I think cold would, be a, would also be a good topic to explore with you, the benefits of, of extreme, well, not necessarily extreme, but I know that people take eye spots and things like that for, for their health benefits. So, yeah, I, I thank you very much for coming on this show and, um, and clarifying some of these aspects of, of this innate aspect of the immune system, interferons and how we can use hydrotherapy to accelerate that response for our benefit. Thank you for joining me on Vital Signs again.
1: Thank you very much, Brian.
0: It was a pleasure. That was my talk with Dr. Roger Schwelt looking at the power of interferon proteins to combat viral infection and how interferon production can be elevated using techniques like hydrotherapy. Now, I invite you to see the potential for ivermectin to relieve the losses of smell and taste brought on by COVID-19 and vaccination. The link to that video is in the description below. It's been great to be with you. I'm Brendan Fallon, and this is Vital Signs.